This is History 2311, Week 12B, my last lecture. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. Look how I'm kicking now. I'm so pretty. I'm on Gucci. I'm so pretty. I'm on get it. This is Sally. That's a tool. Yeah. On my Kodak. Black. Ooh, know that. Yeah. Ooh, get it. Hey. Yeah. Ooh, work it. Contraband, contraband, contraband. I got the plug on who a hawker. Whoa. They gonna find you like Waka. Well, here we are in my final lecture for this class. And as I said last time, the final lecture of a history class, the final chapter of a history textbook is rarely any good. There is just something weird about seeing events, uh, very recent events that you remember flattened and simplified and shrunk down to the few lines they get in your usual textbook. And when you read a history textbook of an era you remember, it's hard not to notice how simplified it is, how much is left out, and you might well extrapolate to realize, oh, somebody who lived through the 1980s or the 1960s or the 1930s or the 1870s would find our narrative of that period equally incomplete and inadequate. Now, on the syllabus, I had given this lecture the tentative title, Obama's America and Trump's America. That seemed like a logical place to end the course, but I'm not actually going to give you today a chronological lecture or story of the Obama years and the Trump years. For all the reasons I've been talking about, histories of the very recent past are often not that satisfying, not that deep. They also tend to be quite partisan, and I know I cannot avoid partisanship in talking about Donald Trump. I taught a class last term, uh, American Nightmare, that was in a way all about Trump, in an indirect way, it was all about Trump or Trump's America. If you weren't in that class and it interests you, it will be offered again in the second term next year. Though of course we'll have to figure out what it looks like without Trump. It sometimes felt like every single conversation I had from early 2016 through December 2020 was in one way or another about Donald Trump. And not talking about him every day has been one of the few real pleasures of life in 2021. So you'll see Obama's face and Trump's face in these slides, but this is not really a lecture about the 2010s. Instead, I want to talk in a big picture way about some of the themes of this course, some of the threads or storylines or narratives we might pull out or construct out of US history since 1865. History is a narrative that we in the present construct about the past. It is literally a story we tell. And the past is infinite, it's endless, it's full of events, full of complexity. So if you aren't selective, if you don't leave things out, if you don't foreground some things over others, 
if you don't look for threads and patterns and connections and plots, you don't really have a story. You just have an endless list of events without shape or meaning. So I'm gonna to talk today in a, in a very tentative, very hand wavy way about narratives, about a few different possible narratives or storylines or threads that we could pull out of our investigations of US history since 1865. Now doing this, forcing the complexity of the past into the simplicity of a narrative inevitably distorts and simplifies the true complexity of the past. But if you don't do it, you haven't really got anything in the end. You haven't really done history. At the very start of this class, I asked you all to write me a narrative of US history in two pages, which I said at the time was an impossible task, but hopefully was a worthwhile exercise. I certainly enjoyed reading them. They were very useful to me as a quick way of gauging what sort of things you all knew about US history coming into the class, and also what sort of things you might be interested in. And that was especially useful to me this year when we were never actually in class together. You couldn't raise your hands to ask me a question. I couldn't ask you questions about what you knew or what you thought. One thing I noticed in reading those little narratives you wrote me is that I got a lot of answers that were really just lists, lists of names, lists of events, timelines. Several of you actually mentioned that uh, Billy Joel song, We Didn't Start the Fire, which, I mean, the lyrics to that song are simply a baby boomer rattling off names and events from his lifetime in roughly chronological order. And that's fine. That kind of listing is what I expected from that assignment. But I would say that a list, a plain list, is not really a story. It's not really a narrative. At least most lists are not narratives. A narrative has more shape than a list. A narrative has a kind of plot. It might even have a moral or a lesson. At the very least, the events in it are connected. There's a causal relationship between events. This thing happened, and then this thing happened because that thing happened. That's what makes it a story. Now, one of the questions on your final exam, it's going to be a take-home exam, of course, more like a, a couple of essay assignments. One of the questions asks you to reread what you wrote for me at the start of this class and to reflect on what you learned this term and how you might change that narrative that you wrote in January, what you might add to it, and so on. If you didn't do that assignment, don't worry, there'll be another way to work that question on the exam. But for those of you who did, I'd like you, if you can, to think about narrative. So the exam question, is the point is not just to add more events or dates or facts to the list, because that wasn't the point of this course, at least it's not what I was trying to do. I'd like you, if you can, to step back and try and make sense of it all, to construct a narrative or a plot that makes sense to you, to think about what you see as the shape of American history since 1865, or the most important thread, or the thread or narrative that is most interesting to you. And there is, it should go without saying, not one right answer to this question. There are at least as many answers as there are students in this class. The past is so marvelously complex that any two people can look at the same series of past events and pull out entirely different narratives. They can see different threads. They can draw different lessons. 
And that's one of the things I love about history. To be clear, this does not mean that history is just made up. This does not mean I'm not saying that history is just individual opinions and that no opinion is any more valid than any other. The past is real, but our view of it is inevitably shaped by our perspective. What you're looking at here is nine prints from a very famous series of prints by the Japanese artist Hokusai, the 19th century master of the woodblock print. These are nine prints from a series Hokusai did called 36 Views of Mount Fuji. Now Mount Fuji in Japan is said to be the most photographed mountain in the world. It's been photographed and drawn and painted from every angle, in every season, in every kind of weather. And of course, it's also been written about in prose and poetry and song. Each one of these prints is a view of Mount Fuji. And everyone is different, different colors, different shape, different perspective. And these are just Hokusai's prints. We could add thousands more images of the mountain from every possible angle, every point of view, taken at every point in time. And every representation of Mount Fuji would be different. Everyone would be shaped by its own perspective. But that does not mean that the mountain is not real. And that's kind of my philosophy of history. The past is the mountain. Each of these images is a representation of the mountain and they are history. So with that long introduction, uh, I'm going to sketch out in this lecture, a couple of views of Mount Fuji. That is a couple of themes or storylines that I see when I look at US history and that have shaped the lectures I've written for you this term. Again, the mountain is real, but my view of it is shaped by where I stand my politics, my commitments, my judgments. And that's going to be true for you too. There are 75 students in this class. Add Jason, Jonathan, and I, that's 78. 78 views of Mount Fuji. So for example, to the conservative students in this class, I know you are out there. I see you. I, I read your comments on Teams. It makes me happy to read them. And I imagine that every comment you do post probably represents like five or 10 times that you bit your tongue and rolled your eyes at your leftist professor and said nothing, just like I used to do when I was a conservative college student. And then I know there are students out there in the class whose perspective differs from mine in different ways. Female students, of course, black and brown students, Asian students, First Nation students, queer disabled students, my lectures inevitably express the point of view of a middle-class, middle-aged, cis-het white guy who used to love Ronald Reagan. Used to. I'm not saying that anything goes, that there is no truth. There is a mountain, but we each narrate the past in a way that makes sense to us based on who we are and where we stand. That's history. One of the stories that we have attended to this term is the partisan political story, the story of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and the different political alignments that marked the century. Now, U.S. history is not only the story of these two parties. In fact, U.S. political history is not just the story of these two parties. But because they are such important and influential entities that have existed through the whole time period we've been studying in this class, they kind of couldn't help but become characters in our story. And if you stand back and oversimplify, which is what I'm trying to do in this lecture, you can, as I've said before, divide the 20th century into roughly three thirds, an era of Republican dominance, 
that stretched actually from the Civil War up to the Great Depression, followed by an era of democratic dominance at mid-century, call it the New Deal order, the liberal consensus, Cold War liberalism, and finally an era of Republican or conservative dominance since around 1980, call this the Reagan revolution, neoliberalism, the new right. Now, this doesn't mean that the pattern is fixed. There's no law that says the pendulum has to swing back and forth in a linear way. There's no law that says the next 30 years will be years of democratic dominance. Because another story that I've tried to lay out this term is how the parties themselves have transformed over time. Uh, to put it in very simple terms, how they switched places. And of course, this was Abraham Lincoln's story about the two drunks uh, wrestling on the barroom floor who somehow wrestled one another into each other's coats. As I've said a number of times, it's too simple just to say they switched places, but I have encouraged you to think of the two major parties in the United States, not as fixed entities, but as ever shifting coalitions, as blobs of jelly, like on this messy map, blobs of jelly that split off and reform and that are very good at absorbing dissenting groups, but are also inevitably transformed by the very groups they absorb. The most obvious recent example of this is Donald Trump's takeover of the Republican Party, a process that actually began before Trump with the Tea Party movement of 2010 to 2012. The Republican Party of Ronald Reagan was first and foremost a party of corporate interests, a party of big business. But Reagan reached out very effectively to social conservatives and other groups. By the Bush years and the Obama years, the distance between what you might call the traditional Republican power structure or power elite and the voters they were courting, uh, white working class men in particular, the distance between them had grown immense. But the Republican leadership couldn't disown these voters. They couldn't do without those votes. So they just stretched farther and farther in the direction of this angry, aggrieved white populism until eventually Donald Trump came along and this movement that the older Republicans, the Reagan Republicans had thought to absorb, had thought to co-opt, to make use of, to swallow, ended up swallowing and digesting them. And this is an old story. The two-party system does a lot to contain and co-opt dissent in America, but the two parties are not fixed and anything can happen. This has, I think, long been Bernie Sanders' strategy on the left, too. Sanders does not even call himself a Democrat. He keeps one foot outside of the Democratic Party. But his goal has always been to pull the Democratic Party leftwards towards some kind of democratic socialism, and maybe one day to become the dominant force in that party. I think Bernie himself has possibly had his last kick at that can, but the plan itself is not impossible. Another story I've tried to trace this term is that of the American century. That is, the United States' place in the world and the rise and perhaps the fall, certainly the decline, of American hegemony or American empire. In the first half of our class, I tried to trace some of the things that made this rise to global power possible the tremendous productivity of the United States, a continent rich with natural resources, but also the mighty economic engine of American capitalism. That economic power was eventually translated into military might, 
whether it's the armies of D-Day or the air power that became the hallmark of an American way of war. But we've also traced the story of America's soft power, the ideological appeal, even the moral authority that came from things like Woodrow Wilson's language of self-determination and a war to end wars, and the powerful appeal of American popular culture, jazz music and Hollywood movies and Coca-Cola all around the world. In the second half of the term, my emphasis shifted to the cost of being the world's leader, the cost of being the hegemon. You might think that everybody wants to be top dog, but I would say that world leadership cost the American people. The United States made real sacrifices to be and stay the leader of the free world. There's an obvious cost in what they call blood and treasure, that is uh, taxpayer money and the lives of American soldiers. But there's also the price of being afraid, of constant vigilance. The height of American power in the world was also the height of American anxiety about the world, whether that was in the first Red Scare, 1919, the second Red Scare of the 1950s, or the War on Terror in the 21st century. World leadership never brought security to Americans. If anything, it brought the reverse. And there have always been people willing to stoke fear to sell the public on this foreign adventure or that policy. Finally, there's the more subtle cost, the moral cost, uh, the erosion of the nation's own ideals as a world of ends comes to justify just about any means, whether that's in the Philippines or Vietnam or Iraq. In a different year, I might have done more with this thread. When Barack Obama was first elected in 2008, of course it was profound and significant that a black man had been elected president. But at the time, what seemed equally profound and significant to me personally was that I hoped and thought that he was going to end George Bush's war on terror, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I hoped he was going to close Guantanamo and pull the United States back from a future of endless imperial wars on terror all over the developing world. That was a big part of Obama's appeal in 2008. I think it's the main reason he beat Hillary Clinton in the race for the nomination was that Obama had taken a clear position against the Iraq war all along, while Clinton had supported the war and certainly prevaricated on it. They gave Obama the Nobel Peace Prize just eight months into his presidency, basically because the world was so glad he wasn't George W. Bush. But in retrospect, that prize was probably premature. Obama struggled to extricate the United States from Iraq, from Afghanistan, from lesser known wars like the conflict in Somalia. So in a different year, I might have spent more time on American exceptionalism, on foreign policy issues, tracing the idea from Woodrow Wilson through the rest of the century that the United States is no ordinary country, that it has a special purpose, a global purpose, that it is the world's policeman or the leader of the free world, and that when it acts, it acts in the global universal interest of all humankind. Obama called the United States the one indispensable nation. He actually borrowed that language from Madeleine Albright, who was Bill Clinton's Secretary of State. She put it in even stronger terms. She said, if we have to use force, it is because we are America. We are the indispensable nation. We stand tall and we see further than other countries into the future. We see the danger here to all of us. 
So in other years, I might have spent more time tracing this Wilsonian language and trying to show how that kind of moral certitude can also become a trap. This idea that the United States is indispensable means that the United States must pretty much always be at war. But as I said during my lecture on Wilson and the First World War, along came a president who couldn't care less about the Wilsonian ideal. A president who liked American power, sure, but who had no investment in any kind of global universal mission, or even in maintaining a pretense that American foreign policy is driven by some kind of high-minded democratic ideal. So I don't know where that leaves the American empire or American exceptionalism in 2021. And I should not make predictions because every time I do, they come out wrong. Maybe I make them wrong by making them. I don't particularly look to Joe Biden for vision in foreign policy, but if vision is a synonym for Wilsonian hubris, I don't know that I want vision. My quiet hope is that the 2020s might be like the 1920s, a decade in which the United States looks inward, in which it has a little more humility when it comes to foreign conflicts, even licks its wounds a little bit. That's not the most inspiring vision, but there are definitely worse things that could happen. Again, one point of this story is that anything is possible. The last story or narrative thread I want to point out is maybe the hardest one to see. I only really realized in prepping this lecture today that this was something I was trying to articulate all year. And that is the struggle for equality in America and the persistence of inequality. When I say equality, I mean income inequality, wealth inequality. You knew you were gonna see this graph again, but I also mean racial inequality and I mean gender equality and all the other equalities or inequalities you can name. I had thought before I sat down to write this lecture that I would have a section on economics and then a section on race or vice versa. But I realized that what I wanted to say is they're the same story. Until this year, the textbook that we always used in this course was Eric Foner's Give Me Liberty. And as the title suggests, Foner's book frames the whole narrative of US history as the story of liberty, of American freedom. It's a story of how freedom spreads, how freedom is lost at times, how the meaning of freedom or liberty changes. That is Foner's photograph of Mount Fuji. Freedom is the narrative thread that he has chosen to pull out. And it's a good book. And freedom is great. Don't get me wrong. I am pro-freedom. I definitely think that the left could and should take the language of freedom back from the right a little bit, or at least challenge their monopoly on it. The right talks about freedom all the time, but if you can't get health care without a job or you can't leave a job that's killing you because it's the only way for you to get health care or save for retirement or feed your kids, how free are you? There is so much more to freedom than the free market. There are more kinds of freedom than just tax cuts and deregulation. So I think the left, which is obviously where my sympathies lie, could do a better job of talking about freedom but I also think that this preoccupation with freedom as the central storyline of American history is, well, it's just not the thread that interests me right now. I think this preoccupation with freedom is actually a hangover from the Cold War, frankly, where freedom was seen as the thing that distinguished the American sphere of influence from the Soviet sphere. But the Cold War has been over for like 30 years. 
what would United States history look like if we did the same thing as Eric Foner, but with equality rather than freedom as the defining question, as the thread we pulled out? Equality is just as much one of the founding ideals as freedom. It's in the Declaration of Independence. It comes before the part about life and liberty. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Now, yes, I know that all men, first of all, it's gendered language. And I know just as Martin Luther King knew, well, I don't know it as deeply as he knew it, but we both know there's a big old racial asterisk next to that all men, especially when these words come from the mouth of Thomas Jefferson. Still, those are magic words. Equality precedes freedom as the purpose of the American experiment. If we put equality and the road to equality, the struggle for equality, the persistence of inequality, if we put that at the center of US history, the insistence on seeing every person as equally precious, equally valuable, as morally equal to every other, we could ask what events and policies and episodes brought Americans closer to a just society of moral equals, and what events and policies and episodes increased the inequalities that divide them. That would give us a narrative line that connects Reconstruction to the Gilded Age, to the election of 1896, to the progressivism of Jane Addams, to the boom and bust story of the 1920s, to the Great Depression and the New Deal, to the freedom struggle, and right on up to the present day. In particular, this narrative would remind us that the struggle for racial equality and the struggle for economic equality are not separate. I mean, this is my perspective, but I always feel that attempts to choose between racial equality and economic equality, for instance, to parse out whether Trump supporters are primarily motivated by economic insecurity or racial antipathy are generally misguided as is the belief that you could somehow solve, that's in quotes, racial inequality or economic inequality without solving the other. The function of racism in American history, the function of race really, has always been to justify and perpetuate systems of economic exploitation. And the intensity of racial thinking in America, the intensity of white supremacy in US history is really a historical response to the threat of equality. Race is a fiction, a highly adaptable fiction, and racism is just one of the tools that power uses to justify inequality and exploitation in the face of a democratic ideal. The last theme or thread I want to pull out is not really a narrative. It's more a set of skills or habits that we have tried to teach and reinforce in this class. Broadly speaking, you can call those skills or habits historical thinking, thinking like a historian. I've tried in my lectures to model my thinking, to be transparent about the moves I'm making, things like zooming in or zooming out, or today, constructing narratives out of a list of events. Those are just two of the intellectual habits under the larger umbrella of historical thinking. The place this has probably been most explicit is in your tutorials and your assignments, particularly the attention we have put on reading primary sources and on different kinds of primary sources. Here is a secret about history. It is not simply a bunch of names and dates and stuff to memorize. It is a way of thinking. It is a set of skills and practices and questions to ask. It is a way of being in the world. 
one thing I've tried to do this term, and your, your TAs have too, is to make explicit how we think about history, to make visible those habits of mind. Now, I don't expect you to become professional historians, but the tools we talked about are also tools for living. They're tools for being good democratic citizens and they're tools for not being taken advantage of. You live in a world filled with people who would prefer you forget history or who would like to sell you a kind of triumphant cartoon version of history. A culture without history, a society without history is a childish society. And it's also at the mercy of every kind of huckster and crook. At its best, historical perspective, historical thinking inoculates you against both hype and despair. It's kind of a vaccine against bullshit and propaganda. When you confront a situation that doesn't seem right, ask yourself, does this situation have a history? If it does, and it always does, then it could have been otherwise, and it could be different in future. I talked about zooming in and zooming out. Zooming in means looking beneath the surface. It means seeing that, that everything is contingent and there are exceptions to every rule. Zooming out means taking the long view. Someday, all the troubles we're living through will, inshallah, be one slide in one lecture in somebody's history course. Zooming out also means recognizing that the personal is political. Ask yourself if challenges in your life are really your own individual failings or problems, or if you might not be experiencing collective problems, the kinds of things that neoliberalism disguises as individual miseries, but which actually require collective political solutions. Here's another example of historical thinking for life. Every time we gave you a primary source, we encouraged you to go through the same four steps. Identify the source, read or observe the source, contextualize it, and corroborate your interpretation. There's a question on the take-home exam that's gonna give you a primary source and ask you to do this one more time. But these steps are not just good advice for doing history, they are also good advice for living in a world of hype and misinformation, which we are awash in in these days. The critical thinking that history teaches, not just history, also science, also any good liberal arts education, but that critical thinking is so important right now. The ability to read documents, to account for bias, not to throw out everything you read because it is biased, but to take it into account to construct a rational, realistic picture of the world, despite the fact that all evidence is flawed and fragmentary. Those skills have always been important, but they've never been more important. I'm talking about things like fake news and conspiracy theories, but I'm not only talking about that. The four questions that we ask of a source are just good advice for living in a complex world filled with competing interests and points of view. When you meet somebody whose views are different than your own, treat them as a source. I don't mean be suspicious because they are, quote, biased. I mean, try to understand, ask, who is this person? Where are they coming from? What is their point of view? What do they have to teach me? What is their context? And how can I corroborate my interpretations? It's the same four questions. I had a history professor when I was an undergraduate who ended one of his courses by telling us to be skeptics, but not cynics. And I often steal that at the end of a class. The point of these questions is not to root out all bias because the world is trying to fool you. The point is to appreciate different perspectives, 
We are all looking at the same mountain. We're just standing in different spots. Thank you so much for your time and your attention and your work this weird, hard term. I'm so sorry that I didn't get to meet you face to face. And I'm even sorrier for all the things that were taken from you uh, in this very difficult pandemic year. But that just makes me appreciate your interest and your effort all the more. I hope you're all staying safe and keeping healthy. We're not out of the woods yet, but this too shall pass. Good luck on the take-home exam, good luck in all your other classes, and good luck in whatever comes next. Thanks so much for watching. Ooh, America, I just checked my follow and listen. You, you motherfuckers owe me. Mama told me, get your money.